0: Um, but as you 're turning there, let me um, let me set the table for you uh, we 've spent the last several months looking at passages in the Gospels, answering the question, "What kind of king is King Jesus?" and um, I could sort of do that for the rest of my life, but uh, felt like maybe it was time to to do something that was more in keeping with what I typically do, and that is preach sequentially through. Books or passages. And I had lots of different things going through my head, and one of them was to preach through the minor prophets. And I talked with uh, several folks about this, got their opinions, and uh, told them that because the minor prophets don't get a whole lot of attention, maybe because they're minor prophets and not major prophets. Minor meaning they're just shorter than the major prophets. That's the only difference. I'm sure being a prophet felt major to each of the minor prophets. But the minor prophets don't get much attention. And yet the minor prophets have a whole lot, a whole lot to say to us in our cultural moment. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to make our way through the, the, prof, the minor prophets. And we're beginning with Amos because Amos is quite likely the first actually, of all of the writing prophets. He's probably the the oldest, if you will. Uh, And Amos conducted his ministry from the end of the 8th to the middle of the 8th century B.C., which is about 100 years or so after the division of the kingdom. The kingdom was united under Saul and David and Solomon, but then it was divided after the death of Solomon Jeroboam, being one of his very bright and very capable lieutenants, rebelled against the United Kingdom, rebelled against Solomon, and took ten tribes with him and formed the northern kingdom that we refer to, and the Bible refers to, as Israel. Rehoboam, who was a son of Solomon, inherited the throne from Solomon, but only ended up with two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. And that formed the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. So you have two kingdoms, and they're always at war with each other. Sometimes they're making some alliances with each other, but a lot of times they're making alliances against each other with pagan kings. The point is that it's become a mess, a real mess. By the time you get to the days of Amos and Isaiah and Hosea, the prophets that are virtually contemporaneous with Amos. But Amos is the first of them. And what Amos ministers in the context of is a theological, moral mess. And that's what we're going to see as we work our way through Amos. The book falls pretty conveniently into three sections. The first section is chapter 1-1 through chapter 3, verse 8. And so we're reading the last verses of the first section of the prophecy, but we'll be referring to the whole of this first section Um, in the sermon this morning so look at Amos chapter 3 beginning at verse 1 and hear the word of God hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you O people of Israel against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt you only have I known of all the families of the earth therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city And the people are not afraid. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Let's pray together. Lord, uh, each week we ask for your help. We ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, uh, each week we need your Spirit, but we feel that it is especially true as we come to the Minor Prophets that we need your help. So grant us your Spirit. You've given us your word, but grant us your Spirit that we might understand your word. And that we might take it seriously, receive it as a gift from you, and apply it to our lives. Lord, help each of us to do this, we pray, by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now here's an interesting thing. Everybody... Everybody, I mean, I think everybody, I think this is universal, okay. Everybody, everybody expresses some sense of outrage, of moral indignation with respect to something, right? Everybody expresses moral indignation, some sense of outrage, with respect to something. It may be Democrats who express moral outrage with respect to Republicans. It may be Republicans who express moral outrage with respect to Democrats. It may be watching CNN on Thursday evening and hearing some report of some form of terrorism, some form of human exploitation, some form of oppression, there's something inside every single person in the face of something that says, why won't somebody do something about that? Right? Everybody experiences a sense of moral indignation with respect to something. But here's the interesting thing. Just about everybody is reluctant to allow the same privilege to God. The idea that God himself might find something or anything or a whole lot of things morally outrageous and might be disposed because of his moral indignation with respect to that thing to manifest his moral indignation to, if you will, do something about the thing that he finds morally reprehensible, that notion is almost universally reprehensible to people. You know what I mean? The idea that God might be holy and just and righteous and that he might give expression to his holiness, his righteousness, and his justice in the form of wrath is a notion from which we retreat, and in many cases ourselves find morally reprehensible. But that idea is an idea that prevails in the Minor Prophets. It isn't the only idea that prevails, or you find very much present in the Minor Prophets. The prospect of restoration The hope of restoration you find equally present in the minor prophets. But frankly, folks, the hope of restoration never becomes a great and grand and glorious hope apart from the realities of God's holiness and righteousness and justice and the expression of his holiness and righteousness and justice in his wrath Upon those things, and indeed those people which and whom he finds morally reprehensible. Now, that's a tough one. It's a tough one to hear, it's a tough one to communicate, and it's a hard one for our culture to receive. But it is deeply embedded in the Minor Prophets and, in fact, the whole of the Bible. As you come to the prophet Amos, you come to a prophet who communicates very, very clearly the word of God which he received from God concerning the sin of Israel and of the nations that surround Israel, including Judah. Eight times in the opening two chapters, the phrase recurs. I will not revoke punishment. Or as the NIV has it, I will not withhold my wrath. Eight different times. Spoken first to Damascus, And then concluding, spoken to Israel, I will not withhold my wrath. Now, what are we to think about this? How are we to deal with this? Well, let me suggest three things. First, you have to face squarely what I've already suggested, the reality of wrath, the reality of God's wrath. And then you have to think seriously about the reason for God's wrath, the reality of it, and then the reason for it. And then finally, among other things, you have to think seriously about the response to God's wrath, the reality of it, the reason for it, and the response to it. The reality of it first. It's an inescapable thing in Scripture. It is just there. Now, I suppose something has to be said here about what I believe and what we as a church believe about the Bible. We take the Bible seriously, we receive it as God's Word. We do not sit in judgment of it, but we seek to submit our thinking to its judgment of us. And when you come to something like this, you've got to start there you got to start with what is a formative and foundational idea concerning the Bible. It certainly is a word that is conveyed through men to the people of God. But it is a word that comes from God to the prophets and the apostles. At the end of this section, Amos is in effect making that point. He's underscoring that point. He's given this word of judgment, this pronouncement that judgment is coming upon all of these nations, Moab and Ammon and, and Edom and Judah and Israel. And if you're in one of those nations, you're going to ask the obvious question, right? Who are you and how do you know? What business do you have saying these things? And Amos is the first of the writing prophets, but not the first in the prophetic office, wants to underscore for his hearers that these words are not his words, but they are words that originate first with God who gave them to him. And so in verses 2, verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 3 of chapter 3 and through verse 6, he strings together seven cause-effect questions that are there to illustrate this point, this fact, that God never does anything without first revealing what he is going to do through his prophets. That's what you see in verse 7. God doesn't do anything without first disclosing what he's going to do. If you go all the way back to Genesis, in the first two chapters of Genesis, the creation before the fall, and before you would think, well, now we've had the fall, everything is a mess, everything is cracked, everything is broken, Humpty Dumpty's fallen off the wall, nobody can put him back together, then you need a word from God. That's not the first time you need a word from God. In the creation, God speaks to the man and sets the limits, the boundaries, describes and defines for him what obedience is to look like, and what disobedience will result in. You see, you understand? God never does anything without first communicating to those whom he loves, to his people, what it is that he is going to do. And that trajectory established in Genesis 1 and 2 continues through the whole of Scripture. That's a wonderful thing. That is a wonderful thing. This culture is filled with people from tarot card readers to various other kinds of prophets of all kinds. Not just people who are the Gene Dixon types, but economists and politicians and sociologists and everything else. People who are in the business of projecting and predicting what's going to happen. And people read and listen to this stuff and, you know, they flip from one thing to the other and to the next and to the one after that. But you see, Christianity embraces the idea that a real God is really there. He is a personal God who thinks and who communicates, and he never does anything without first telling us what he's going to do. That's a beautiful thing. That's a phenomenal thing. We don't live in what one Christian theologian described as epistemological darkness. Epistemology is the branch of philosophy that studies knowledge. How you know and how you know that what you know you really do know. It has to do with what you know. The the Christian says, I know what I know because God has spoken it. And it's clear. And it's true. And from the beginning of time, he has never withheld, as Paul puts it in Acts, he has never withheld anything that would be of benefit and value to me, his child, to his people. And so what Amos does in these verses at the end of chapter 3 is again string together these cause-effect questions, all of which are described to illustrate this point, that God always reveals what he's going to do before he does it. And he reveals it through his prophets. So does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Of course not. Does a bird fall into a snare on the earth when there's no trap for it? Of course not. You set a trap, you put bait in the trap, and the bird goes into the trap. Cause, effect. Does God ever do anything without first revealing it to his prophets? No. No. He always speaks. And he always speaks clearly. And what he is doing is revealing what he is going to do. He is offering a word of warning. He is describing what the outcome will be. And the reality is that his wrath is a real thing, as i said. An inescapable teaching of scripture embedded in the teaching of scripture. What is wrath? Here are a couple of definitions. Wrath is the outward manifestation, the outward expression of God's righteous anger toward those who have defied him what is wrath his, the outward manifestation the outward expression of his righteous anger toward those who have defied him and J.I. Packer says this about it in his chapter in knowing God a book you need to read if you haven't read in his chapter on the wrath of God he says quote it is his right this is this is great it is, it, is, it is his right and his necessary reaction to objective moral evil. His right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. Righteous anger, right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. Now, What is it that makes wrath so difficult for us to get our heads and arms around? Well, what makes it so difficult for us to get our heads and our arms around the idea of wrath is that we never or extremely rarely see expressions of righteous wrath and anger. What do you think of when you think of anger? I know what my daughters think of. Are you with me? I know what my daughters think. I know what my wife thinks of. What my daughters think of when they think of anger is something that's irrational, unreasonable, an emotional outburst, excessive, unpredictable, capricious, Right? It's the kind of thing that causes you to walk on eggshells, tiptoe on eggshells. It's the kind of thing that causes an abused animal to cower in the corner. When the animal should probably be running to its master, the animal retreats, hears the sound of the master's voice, and unlike the old RCA Victor thing, doesn't perk up his ears, but hides in the corner. Terrified. The reason, I'm pretty sure, the reason this idea of anger and wrath in God is so hard for us to get our brains and our arms around is because all we have ever seen or experienced or done, are you with me, is impulsive, irrational, excessive, Capricious, illegitimate, unrighteous. So the idea, the idea that someone could be provoked to a calculated expression of anger and wrath directed very specifically like a smart bomb at the thing which provoked that wrath and indignation. That's a very, very hard idea for us to get our brains around. And yet that is what the wrath of God is. And where do you see it? Let me give you a couple of passages to read. Because everything, right, everything at the end of the day, everything is about the squirrel. It's an inside joke for those who are here at Christ the King. You know the little sermon illustration where the pastor gets the kids down front and says what's gray and has a bushy tail and lives in trees and nobody says anything. Now, come on, you know what it is. What's gray and bushy has a tail, collects acorns, berries, and then what is it? Finally, little Tommy puts his hand up in the back of the room and says, I know the right answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. <laughs> because everything at the end of the day Everything hones in on Christ. Where would you go to find a clear demonstration of a calculated response to evil and unrighteousness? John chapter 2 or Mark chapter 11, Jesus cleansing the temple. Jesus cleansing the temple is not an emotional outburst. Jesus cleansing the temple is a calculated, determined, and focused expression of righteous indignation as he beheld in the temple, the place where his Father's name is to dwell, the place where the Father's presence was ensconced, the place that was to be a place of prayer, If you read Mark chapter 11, not only for Jews, but for all of the nations. And Jesus comes into the temple, and what does he see? He sees oppression. He sees extortion. He sees the Gentiles being moved out of the Gentile courts so that the traders can set up their tables and sell their sheep and their doves so that the in-group the people that has enough money, the people that has the right religious standing can come into the temple, buy the sacrifices, and be assured in their minds before God that they're accepted. And Jesus says, No! And when he encounters it, in a calculated, focused, determined expression of moral outrage and indignation, he makes a cord. He makes, he makes a whip of cords, and he drives them all out of the temple. We talked about this the last couple of weeks at the refuge. The temple was a big place. It was not a small room. It was not one or two tables. It was not a couple of guys off in a corner engaged in some extortion. It was money, money lenders who were lending at exorbitant cost. It is tradesmen who were selling it at exorbitant cost. And it infuriated Jesus. And it is right that he should be infuriated. And it would be wrong if he didn't do something about it. If you saw Jesus in that setting. And you knew what was going on. And Jesus turned and walked away. You would experience moral indignation. Because the one who could do something about it didn't. But he did. And it was right. And it was focused. And it is a vivid illustration, not of irrational, uncontrolled, emotional outbursts, but a calculated, focused expression of righteous indignation in the face of oppression, injustice, and unrighteousness. Now, that's the reality of it. I'll give you some passages. You can read these passages, Old Testament passages, New Testament passages. I'll just tell you that wrath is not a characteristic of God in the Old Testament that he jettisons when he becomes the incarnate God of the New Testament. Old Testament God's a God of wrath and judgment New Testament, God's God of love and grace. Not true. One God. I'll give you passages so that you can read on your own. Nahum, one of the minor prophets we will look at. Nahum 1, verses 2 through 8. God pursues his adversaries. Just one. You can do the cross-referencing in Nahum 1 yourselves to see the other passages in the Old Testament. But you see it also in the New Testament and you see it in the Incarnate One, Jesus of Nazareth. Matthew 24, verse 51. Matthew 25, verse 30. Matthew 25, verses 44 to 46. On the lips of Jesus, speaking of a place of weeping and of the gnashing of teeth. A place of where the wrath of a righteous God finds expression. So it's a reality. It's a reality on both sides of the cross. And as we'll see in a minute, it is a reality at the cross. So what's the reason for it? What's the reason for wrath? Well, as I've said, suggested, alluded to already, the reason for wrath is that the Lord is holy the Lord is holy in chapter 1 verse 2 God's first word to the people is his personal name typically and this is just something to to mention because it emphasizes what I believe God through Amos is trying to emphasize typically in Hebrew grammar and syntax The verb appears first. And the verb always has the subject carried with it. So in Amos 1 verse 2, typically you would see the verb roars first in the sentence. But that isn't the case in Amos 1 verse 2. The first word emphasizing that first word is the word Yahweh, the personal name of God. Who's the lion who is roaring? It is Yahweh. And who is Yahweh? Well, very quickly, from Exodus 3 through 19, you have some idea of who Yahweh is, the name that God used when he revealed himself to Moses. When Moses beheld the burning bush, the bush that was burning but was not consumed There's so much that's being conveyed in that little passage. But when Moses beholds that bush and he's drawn to that bush, the Lord speaks to him and says, Moses, take off your shoes for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now what is it that makes that particular bush and that particular piece of dirt holy? It is the presence of the Holy One of Israel. There's the fire. There is the word to Moses, take off your shoes. This is a holy place. And over the course of the next 16 chapters, God describes himself further and more fully as the Holy One of Israel and then acts as the Holy One of Israel and brings the nation to Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, where he weds them to himself and tells them that he wants them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then he sets a fence around the base of the mountain. Do you remember? And nobody can pass the fence. Why? Because God, who is a consuming fire, comes down in fire on the top of the mountain and reiterates what was said at Exodus chapter 3 I am holy. And nothing impure or unclean can go through or around or over that fence because if something unclean crosses that fence, what will happen to it? It will be consumed. It will die. It will be destroyed. What is being conveyed through Moses to Israel? Yahweh is saying these things. The Holy One of Israel. And He is coming to address the unholiness that is in Israel and Judah and Edom and Ammon and all of the rest of the contiguous countries. He is the Holy One of Israel. What does fire do? Fire purifies, doesn't it? Fire consumes what is impure. In Isaiah chapter 6, who fly around the throne of God? The seraphim, right? What is their song? Night and day, forever and ever. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. Seraphim comes from the Hebrew verb that means to burn. So in their name, they carry the connotations of what God is, that he is a consuming fire, that he is holy. So from Exodus 3 to Exodus 19, Isaiah 6, and every place else, there is in evidence over and over and over again the character of God as holy. Habakkuk says that he is of two pure eyes even to look upon sin or unrighteousness. So what is the reason for wrath? What is the explanation for wrath? The reason for wrath is simply the character of Almighty God as holy. So it is the Holy One of Israel who thunders against the unrighteousness of the nations. Who through Amos communicates this word of warning. Who pleads with them that they not deal with him lightly. And what are the words that come? If you look again through the first two chapters of Amos, here are the things that are being railed against by a righteous and holy God. Against Damascus, God's wrath is threatened for economic oppression. Let me encourage you, get a good one-volume commentary Or get a good study Bible. Something that has notes. And this is what you'll find. This is what you'll see summarized in these indictments of the nations. Economic oppression. It means the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And the rich are getting richer at the expense of the poor. And they're being oppressed and beaten down. Like so much wheat being beaten And separated wheat and chaff. He rails against Philistia. For engaging in kidnapping and the slave trade. These are not trite matters. They're not small matters. Kidnapping. A capital offense in the Old Testament. The slave trade. Using human beings as a commodity. The same thing against Phoenicia. Cruelty and slavery. Against Edom murder, and ruthless exploitation against Ammon, brutality, and especially the brutality of murdering pregnant women, slashing them open. And then against Judah for her lawlessness and her idolatry. You know, up to this point, you could imagine the 12 tribes saying, Go get them, God. Go get them. But then Amos begins to expose the sin of Judah and the sin of Israel. And Judah's sin is lawlessness, rejecting the law of God, the law of God which is given as the wisdom of God to guide his people, to direct his people so that their paths might be straight, so that they might have a light for those paths. And they've repudiated it all. And to use John's statement... In the early chapters of his gospel, they do it because they love the darkness rather than the light. Lawlessness and idolatry and the most elaborate denunciations are reserved for Israel, the ten northern tribes. In verses 6 through 8 of chapter 2, God issues this indictment against them because of oppression and the exploitation of the poor, the same kinds of things that you see in the nations around them. He indicts them for their sexual perversions, sexual perversions which are coupled with religious acts, marrying sexual perversion and purported worship of God, like the Temple of Diana or something like that. And then in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 2, he rebukes them. He warns them. He delivers this indictment against them. An indictment that comes because they have forgotten the grace of God. They've repudiated his grace. Verse 9, it was I who destroyed the Amorite. Verse 10, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I led you 40 years in the wilderness, and I brought you to a land, the land of the Amorites. And if you remember the stories, it's a land where they didn't build cities, and they didn't plant vineyards, and there were these great and strong cities and these fruitful vineyards, and they didn't labor for a bit of it. All of it is given as a gift of God and evidence of His grace. And they repudiated all of it. They've forgotten the grace of God. In verse 11, they have repudiated the gift of prophets who continue the tradition that is across the life of the nation, the tradition of bringing the word of God so they would know his truth and live in its light. And so God, through Amos, is telling them, wrath is coming because of idolatry and perversion and because you have preferred idolatry and perversion over grace and blessing. And it is the holy God of Israel, not a capricious God who's doing this, but a God whose wrath is a right expression of his moral outrage at unrighteousness. So, that's what wrath is. It is real. It is right for God to express it. And so, what is our response to it? And we'll come back to this as we make our way through Amos, because in Amos, as I've said, it's not only this very strong, very clear teaching regarding God's righteous indignation in the presence of moral evil, but all of it is a summons first to rejoice. It's a summons to rejoice. It doesn't sound like it, does it? But it is. It is a good thing. And it is a thing that should make our hearts glad to know that there is someone in the universe who is not indifferent to evil. There is someone in the universe who knows what evil is And what goodness is. There is someone in the universe who knows what unrighteousness is. And who knows what righteousness is. Unrighteousness, righteousness. Evil and good. And God who is the Holy One of Israel is that one. And because God is rightly provoked in the presence of evil. And because God, being rightly provoked in the presence of evil, will do something about evil, we can say to our friends, somebody cares. Somebody cares. You get into these conversations with your neighbors and friends who reject the idea of God because of the presence of evil, and what you want to say to them is, what hope do you have that evil will ever be overturned. What hope do you have. That injustices will ever be addressed. And it should be a thing that causes us to rejoice. To say there is a righteous God in the universe. Who cares about injustice. And who will address every injustice. So the first notion of my heart. Is to rejoice. Until. I remember that I too am among the evil ones. And when I am honest with myself and I look at myself and I acknowledge that I am a confused and disordered mess just like Israel and Judah and Ammon and Edom and all of the rest, it should move me to repentance. Not arrogance as a Christian, not pride as a Christian, not thinking I'm better than somebody else as a Christian. It should humble me before Almighty God, which then should move me again to rejoicing because at the cross, God has dealt with all of my injustice and unrighteousness. So what is the response to this? I do think the response is to rejoice and to repent. Rejoice that there is a God who cares. Repent over my own evil and wickedness and rejoice that God has done something about my corruptions, my unrighteousness at the cross of his son. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for this. It's hard. We struggle with it. But we thank you that you are the holy God of Israel and you are not indifferent to moral evil. And you are not inactive in the face of it, but you do deal with it. And as your people this morning, we give you thanks that you have dealt with our evil, our unrighteousness visiting your righteous wrath upon your Son in our place so that we might rejoice and know that we are free of every threat. God, may this give our hearts joy in the days and weeks to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me have you sing number one hundred twenty-five? Both verses. Let us let all things now living. Number one twenty-five. Please.